Great. <laughs> Great. Um, thank you, Sotiris. Thank you. Uh, thanks to everyone for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back in Oxford. Uh, and it's an honor to be invited back to a discussion group that one once uh, helped convene um, many years ago with uh, Professor Janakopoulos, nonetheless. So the topic of today's talk is um, the diffusion of international law into the global market. And this was not chosen as an act of provocation or hubris. I will try to end on a cheerful note on the relevance of international law in times of globalization. Um, let me give you a, a brief uh, idea of where this research comes from, which angle it comes from. It forms part of a wider research project, um, which um, is undertaken by three universities in the Netherlands, uh, the University of Amsterdam, the University of Maastricht, and Erasmus University Rotterdam, and it's a project uh, funded by the, the, the Royal Academy. Um, and the key question that uh, the project seeks to tackle is the following, the interactions between international environmental agreements and private standards or private governance instruments, uh, as one would have it. Now, very briefly, especially in the, in the field of environmental protection on a global scale, there's a veritable explosion in the number of private initiatives. So the idea is that these initiatives, these private initiatives, operate in parallel with, of course, international environmental law. So the question is, can we look into the interactions between international and private standards and formulate some hypotheses? For example, does the operation of private initiatives complement or antagonize international law? Do private standards supplant international law? I mean, these are sort of the questions we're trying to tackle. Attacking them from different views. So we have, you know, law and economic scholars on board, IR specialists, uh, but we're in Amsterdam uh, focus on the international law uh, part of the equation. And while doing uh, research for that project, I came across uh, a phenomenon which, uh, for the purpose of today's presentation, I will call diffusion. Which I think is it's quite an interesting phenomenon, and it has somewhat flown below the radar of, of international legal theory. And the question is the role of international law during the drafting of the standards, and what are the interactions there? Now, I have to admit, when it comes to the idea that international law becomes diffused, I mean, this is not a novel proposition. I've been bitten to the punch by none other than Chichely Professor Emeritus von Lowe who has penned a contribution somewhat 15 years ago, which despite, I mean, or because of its rather oracular formulation, has gathered a cult following among international lawyers. And that is the paper called The Politics of Lawmaking. It appeared in uh, a volume edited by Michael Byers. So this is the concluding paragraph of the paper. So, Von Law suggests, and I quote, it is the concepts and norms of international law as they permeate the world outside the classical state-centered world of international law that are likely to be of increasing significance to most people most of the time in the future. The conceptual framework of international law is likely to become diffused throughout the vast web of non-state international dealings. International law is beginning a process of migration into areas of private life. Now, the irony, of course, is I spent many years in Oxford and I never had the chance to talk to von Law about this idea, but here I am. So, this was the initial idea 15 years ago. The situation looked different. So, 
The question then becomes, is there something that we can term diffusion? And if so, how does this happen? Why does it happen? And uh, what are the challenges that uh, this process poses for international law? So what I will do is I will focus on some of the uh, elements I mentioned, namely what are we looking at when we talk about private standards? What is the concept of interaction? Uh, what do we mean by interaction? And then I will present a very interesting case study, which is the case study of the Marine Stewardship Council, which is a private organization that certifies fishery products. Um, and then I will look into this aspect of diffusion of international law and then perhaps formulate some thoughts as to the challenges and the prospects. Now, the idea that we have private standards or non-state rules or informal rules is nothing new. I mean, you know, if you go back into the question of Lex Mercatoria, I mean, it, it has uh, baffled international lawyers for many decades now. Um, and this idea was, I think, most eloquently, uh, eloquently formulated by, by Jessup in Transnational Law, where he stated that history, geography, preferences, convenience, and necessity have dictated dispersion of the authority to make the rules men live by. So the state and state-made rules and international law are not the only forms of social ordering. I mean, that's, there's nothing new in, in that proposition. Still, this concept of private standards and of uh, rules drafted without the involvement of the state or standards drafted without the involvement of the state has, of course, acquired a, a renewed interest in scholarship. You know, there's this idea of the demise or retreat or the waning of the states and how this impacts upon lawmaking processes and international law. And this is a question that has caught the imagination of international lawyers over the past uh, 20 years. And many propositions have been put forth vis-a-vis uh, -vis this question. I mean, what is the impact of private standard setting or alternative forms of lawmaking on, on international law? Um, and of course, there have been great projects undertaken with respect to this question, and you know we have global administrative law and so on and so forth. I have cherry-picked three uh, views on the question, which I think uh, shed light from different angles uh, on the question. So, uh, in a book on normative pluralism, Clabbers and P. Parinen suggested that the question is no longer, and I quote, uh, solely whether law should incorporate um, morality, religious norms, social norms, or any other standards. Instead, the question increasingly becomes whether law can be replaced with morality or indeed any other standards whose norms may be considered for one reason or another more legitimate. So here we have an idea that international law and private standards stand in an antagonistic relationship, or at least uh, one has the capacity to supplant the other. Of course, this is a view from the normative pluralism uh, angle. Now, Sir Daniel Bethlehem, uh, in a piece called The End of Geography, again uh, revisited uh, what the future of lawmaking could look like. And in this piece, he suggested, uh, and I quote, my inclination is that traditional public international law, if it is going to maintain a relevance and an effectiveness, it's going to have increasingly to take account of and find ways of incorporating uh, what is sometimes described as transnational law. And in that paper, he refers to private standards specifically. A third view coming from a different angle, as Jean de Prima often does, he suggests that uh, this is all a scholarly invention. We are at unease with what's going on. 
we cannot treat this question. We've come up with this idea that they participate in lawmaking and that lawmaking by private entities should be weaved into the fabric of international law because this idea you know, of heterogeneity may seem to guarantee the relevance of the legal expertise. So it's for psychoanalytic reasons that we're actually doing this. Now, I don't fully agree with any of the three um, um, writers, uh, lawyers, um, I have to admit, I'm not convinced that the only way for international law to uh, retain its relevance in the contemporary world is to incorporate these standards. So the idea of you know, coming up with uh, monikers such as soft law or soft private law or informal law and trying to find a way of uh, treating them as law. I think, and this is sort of what I will be trying to do today, is to show how international law can assume a relevance in other ways. Now, of course, we've been talking about international law and private standards, and of course, this uh, opens the Pandora's box of how to distinguish between the two. So what is an international legal rule and what is a private standard? Now, an international legal rule, of course, you know, if you come from a formalist background, it's very uh, easy to answer. You know, just look at the statute and the theory of sources, and that's it. What about private standards? And private standards, of course, I mean, you know, that we have many views in scholarship and many criteria have been put forth. I mean, the obvious one is, of course, the author. So if it's a private entity devoid of international legal personality that's promulgating a standard, well, you can assume that it is not an international legal rule. Now, this, of course, proposition, I would say, is the, is the, safest, the safest bet in terms of distinguishing between the two. But if one looks at the climate change regime, there's so much going on there in terms of hybrid bodies. Uh, you know, the distinction is there, but it may be porous to a certain extent, the, the division line. Then, you know, someone might suggest that rules are, uh, well, international legal rules in the traditional sense are binding and international law. Private standards lack this bindingness and international law. But then, you know, on the one hand, you have the question of soft law, which is not binding. On the other hand, there's a lot being written about the capacity of these standards to exert compliance, which has led, for example, Benvenisti to suggest that they have a de facto bandingness. And so on and so forth. I mean, the addressees, in principle, international legal rules are addressed at states, private standards are, ad are addressed at individuals and companies, and this is also changing. So what we've been seeing over the past five years is that states themselves voluntarily submit to the operation of private standards. So, for example, with regard to fisheries, it is now public authorities that seek to become certified by a private organization, which is very interesting. Now, as I said, said there's, there's so much out there. You know, there, there are many wild beasts roaming the terrain of, of global governance, in a sense. So it might be very hard to come up with a watertight taxonomy. But on the one hand, we can suggest that you know, looking at treaties means that you're looking at international legal rules. And looking at standards that are drafted by private organizations without any involvement by the state uh, could perhaps point you the way towards uh, a standard that you can characterize as private. Now, the second question that I think is interesting is the concept of the interactions between international treaty law and, or international legal rules and private standards. And to be honest, you know, uh, there's so much material out there uh, saying that something interacts with something else. And you know, I've, I said, okay, let's. I mean, what does what does this mean? 
everyone says you know international interacts with domestic law international economic law interacts with uh, international trade law and the question is what do we mean when we say interaction and i started looking to the question and surprisingly there's not much there of course you can always rely on a continental lawyer to come up with an analysis of the concept of the interaction so of the two lawyers that have tackled the question in albeit a slightly different context it's Arangio Ruiz and Georg Ress. Now, Arangio Ruiz suggests that you, know, you have a, the coexistence of two sets of norms uh, within a single normative context, and the interaction manifests itself in terms of a simultaneous impact. Now, Ress more or less says the same thing, but he says that we should not look at the interaction as something frozen in time. It has a dynamic nature. It does not happen in a single instant and then just vanishes. Of course, I'm sorry, I cannot offer too m much more in terms of what it means, but the truth is that, well... Well, Aranjuru Ruiz is alive and well, the oldest member of the Institute. Um, so if one goes about, you know, talking about the interactions between international and private standards, I mean, one suggests that there's a multiplicity of norms, there are two sets of norms, and, you know, they, they, they stand in a situation of reciprocal actions and responses, and these happen over a span of time. Uh, they have a dynamic and co-evolutionary nature. And this interaction, of course, can happen at various stages. I mean, a private standard and a treaty rule can interact at the stage of the creation of the norm or at the implementation of the norm or at, you know, at, at various stages. So we have, to be, uh, we have to keep this in mind. So the question, of course, is why do you know why, what's the, the the deal with this explosion of private standards, especially in, in you know the, the field of environmental governance? And you know the, the key explanation out there is that international law is not delivering. We have many rules, and uh, they're not halting the deterioration of the global environment. So the idea is that private standards crop up essentially to to uh, mitigate this this deficit. And one of these areas is fish. Now, is there a problem with fish? Yes, there is. I mean, there's, been an, there's an explosion in demand and supply, essentially. Um, and as the FAO notes, people have, never, uh, people have never consumed so much fish or depended upon it, which, of course, means that this takes a toll. So this is uh, a figure from the FAO status of world fisheries in 2014, and it shows you that the uh, percentage of overfished and fully fished stocks is... Uh, increasing. And as I would suggest, you know, the more rules we have on fisheries, you know, the decrease does not stop, the, the deterioration does not stop. So this is the idea that a lot of people spin. I mean, you know, having too many rules does not mean that you will have a result. So we might have to think about how to get a result in different ways. Now fish, and I, I don't want to go into too much detail, of course, it's a big problem. It's migratory. It lives within extremely diverse uh, biotic communities, and we know very little about it. That's the truth. And finally, it's a common pool resource, which means that this creates a lot of problems in practice, which have been uh, singled out by uh, Churchill and Lowe. Uh, and, you know, there's a tendency for fish stocks to be fished above biologically optimum levels, and there's a problem with competition, so we need international regulation, at least in the, forms of in in the form of international law. And international law has, of course, delivered in terms of rules. So, I mean, yeah, cherry-picking again, you know, UNCLOS, the fish stocks agreement, um, 
agreements within the auspices of the FAO, soft law documents such as the Code of Conduct for Responsible Fisheries that was drafted in the context of the FAO and to which I will be coming back, um, and uh, regional fisheries agreements. Of course, these pre-existed. Uh, uh, we've had uh, RFMOs uh, in the past, but following the conclusion of UNCLOS and the Fish Stocks Agreement, there's an increase in the number of regional fisheries management organizations. So if one were to ask, okay, so how does this look on paper? I mean, what does international law cover in terms of institutions and why do we have this problem? And someone might suggest, well, we might have too little rules or too few institutions. This is how it looks. So, of course, there are problems that have to do with the problem structure of uh, protecting fish and there are regulatory challenges uh, when it comes to protecting fish. But when it comes to institutions, we would rather say we have quite a few, and we have quite a few uh, instruments. So one cannot suggest that here private standards fill a vacuum in uh, legal regulation. It's not that we don't have any international law, and all of a sudden uh, private standards emerge to fill these lacunas, as it were. So. I, one of the most prevalent, I mean, the most prevalent private standard that we have now is the Marine Stewardship Council, which is based in London. It was formed in 90, uh, 1997 as a non-profit organization. You might have seen this uh, sign on a piece of uh, tuna or cod. And what it says is that it, well, that fish product has been sustainably harvested. Or at least this is the faith you put in the label as a consumer. I mean, if you don't have too much time to think about it. Well, just saying. So the idea is that it is a private entity. The MSC is private, completely private. Um, it, according to its own website, it is a response to the constant deterioration uh, in the health of fish stocks. And it operates on the basis of two standards. So one is the fisheries standard. Uh, which sets out the sustainability requirements for a specific fishery, I mean, the fishery in regard of which the application is made, and then the chain of custody standards. So there's a, there's a mechanism of making sure that the fish that is fished within the sustainable fishery makes its way to Tesco without a leak in terms of sustainability. I will focus on the first one. Uh, so the idea is that consortia of fishermen will go to the MSC and they will file an application and say, okay, we are fishing in that area, we are fishing for a specific species, so certification targets a specific species, uh, so we want to have this certified. Now, the MSC itself does not certify. The MSC drafts the standards and offers third-party uh, certification. So an independent certification body under the, the auspices of the MSC receives the application, takes the standard, which runs up to 200 pages, and it has very detailed instructions as to how to rank the fishery and whether it should be certified, and then they start ranking, essentially. And that's it. And at the end of this exercise, they make a decision as to certify the fishery or not. I mean, the state here has nothing to do with this whole exercise. So how is this relevant to international law, apart from you know, having to do with fish? Uh, well, I started reading the MSC standards, and I have to admit, the more I read it, I had, you know, a, a marker pen, and I started underlining things that looked familiar. 
And then next page, something else looked familiar. And then the next page, something else looked familiar. I said, okay, let me start Googling. And then, or, you know, the idea is that the supposedly private standard is essentially replete with references to international legal rules. So this idea that there is a private standard, which is private, and it's crafted by someone completely dissociated from the state, is not 100% true. So, for example, the MSC core principle one has to do with sustainable target fish stocks. And if you see the formulation, okay, it's not word for word in the respect of this, but essentially it echoes Article 5H of the fish stocks agreement and Article 6.3 of the FAO code of conduct. Now, the MSC principle is based on three core principles, essentially, which are then um, analyzed specifically uh, for the uh, certification body. And I will show you what it looks like, I mean, the, the, the analysis, in terms of criteria. So the MSC core principle two, uh, which is called the environmental impact of fishing, essentially incorporates the ecosystem uh, approach, which was one of the innovations in the, in the fish stocks agreement. So if you read it, it says that fishing operations should allow for the maintenance of the structure, productivity, function, and diversity of the ecosystem, including habitat and associated dependent and ecologically related species on which the fishery depends. Now, if you read Article 5D and E, I've put that in the same paragraph. Again, there is the idea of the ecosystem and that we, you know, measures should be taken and uh, these measures were necessary have to do with conservation and management for the species belonging to the ecosystem. And the same goes for Article 6.2 of the FAO Code of Conduct. Now, here starts the interesting part. Core Principle 3. So up to now, one can say, okay, what did they do? They opened up you know, the relevant treaties and they did a bit of copy-pasting. Okay. Or not. Let's see. MEC Core Principle 3. It says that the fishery, it reads, so is subject to an effective management system that respects local, national, and international laws. Now, what does this mean in plain words? That in order for a fishery to be certified, it has to be situated in an area which is subject to a management system which uh, meets the requirements set down by national and international law. So here we're at the stage of the operation. So essentially what this connotes is that you have uh, a fishery in an area where international law applies, domestic law applies, and on top of that, private certification applies. The question then becomes, how does the MSC make a decision as to whether the criterion you know, of international law are met? And in, not only do they do that, they say, okay, the criteria have been met or not. They rank. So if you get a 60, you pass, but there might be conditions. If you get an 80, there, are no, there is no conditionality. If you get a 100 out of 100, you have a theoretically perfect fishery. Now, I'm going to use two slides. I'm, they're not you know, supposed to scare you or anything. But this is how it looks, I mean, the, the detailed text of the standard. So the idea is that you have an independent certification body which does not comprise of international lawyers who have to make a variety of decisions and rank a fishery, uh, 60, 80, or 100. And for example, they have to uh, make a finding as to whether there exist bilateral or multilateral arrangements 
that create the cooperation required to deliver sustainable management under the obligations of UNCLOS, Articles 632, 64, 118, 119, and Fish Stocks Agreement Article 8. Now, I'm not going to go into cooperation obligations, since we have a, an expert here, but, you know, I would presume that the Fish Stocks Agreement is not the most clearly outlined, uh, automatic, you know, in respect of uh, the text in respect of which you can make a yes-no determination if you're an international lawyer let alone if you're a marine biologist. But what is interesting is that these people are called upon to make a decision as to whether the arrangements in place meet the requirements of UNCLOS or the Fish Stocks Agreement. And I think this is very interesting for a variety of reasons which I will touch upon. Okay, so this is the SG-80 um, and the SG-100 level uh, for scoring. Um, so the idea is that international law, the content of international law, not just the principle that's out there, but substantive obligations, all of a sudden find their way into a detailed private standard and serve as requirements for private decision-making. Now the question is, okay, so what happened there? Did the MSC, um, I mean, did, did this happen by chance? Is it that they said, okay, we have to come up with a private standard. Let's, you know, just collect all the material and make use of them and come up with what sounds like the, the best idea. No, it was a result of design. And what do I mean by design? When the MSC was established, there was a lot of heat from states. So states were not very comfortable with the idea of private certification of fish uh, because of the questions that fish um, raises. And, of course, because it's, it's, it's a lucrative business. Um, and they started petitioning the FAO to do something. So initially, states said, OK, you know what? If the private standard can do it, we can do it better. So we'll come up with our own certification system. And they did. Some states did. Japan, for example, did. Um, but let's just face it. I mean, state certification did not have the impact that private certification had in the market. Again, there's a question of why. Um, and at that point, around 90, uh, 1999, 2000, there were very dense interactions, let's put it thus, between the FAO and the MSC. So there was a double-way uh, double interaction between the two. So the FAO it wasn't too active in the field of fisheries, but from the 1990s onwards, it became one of the leading players. And one of the things the FAO did was that it took international fisheries law and it transcribed it into a soft law document. If you read the FAO Code of Conduct for Responsible Fisheries, there is a clause that says this soft law document, this document doesn't say soft law, this document is supposed to be used by states, international organizations, consortia of the industry, individual fishermen. So the idea was to operationalize international legal rules in a document which can be used by private actors. So there's a lot of research into these interactions by IR scholars and political scientists, and, they have, and these are documented, and the FAO is very open about it, that essentially they steered the MSC into adopting uh, certain of the principles and to setting up their standard, which of course prompted states to say, okay, what are you now doing? I mean, you know, we've complained about that, and you're um, you know, sort of 
guiding them, leading them. And the FAO said, again in cooperation with the MSC, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to create uh, guidelines for private eco-labeling. I'm not looking at this uh, today, but the FAO itself came up with a set of how private certification should take place, which essentially is modeled upon the way the MSC works. So the MSC became the leading player in the field through this interaction, um, which I think is interesting. So at this point, the only thing I would like to stress is that the incorporation of international law into the private standard is not a result of chance. It actually happened through a very structured process of a constant uh, interplay between the uh, MSC and the FAO, and both are open about it. So, coming back to von Lowe's point, um, you know, the suggestion that international law will become diffused through the vast web of interstate dealings. I mean, can, is it a diffusion? And first of all, what does diffusion mean? And uh, does it serve any purpose? And is it, is it of any uh, interest to lawyers? I mean... I have to admit, I, I started reading the, the, the scholarship on diffusion, which, which is a term of art, but not one of international law. Uh, and then I went back to von Lowe's piece, and I realized he had used the same term, which I think is, is interesting. Now, diffusion, of course, is not like interaction. There's not, it's not a term that's used a lot without any analysis. There's a vast quantity of material on diffusion from uh, different angles. So it's a term that's used by comparative lawyers, so twinning um, uh, suggests that uh, diffusion is considered to take place when one legal order or system influences another uh, in some significant way. And for comparative lawyers, the focus has always been on uh, legal rules migrating between uh, states. So there's a, rule, a law in one state, and then for one reason it's uh, transplanted into another. But comparative lawyers look at how this works between states, and here it's international law and private standards. So um, it's, it's, it's a bit different. And social sciences, I mean, social sciences have tackled the question of diffusion, um, of innovations, of ideas, so a much wider field. So again, a, a, more, a more wider definition. Um, so diffusion points out how individuals, groups, or communities may incorporate, reject, or adapt practices or rules designed by others. Now, these are two vague definitions, I would say, or at least wide, but they sort of capture this um, migration, as, as von Law put it. So this, the idea that a rule that exists in a very specific legal context and milieu finds its way into a completely different context. So in that sense, we can think of diffusion both as, as a process, um, but also as an outcome. So what's interesting about this process, I mean, from, a, uh, from an international law perspective? Um, and again, yes, the, I'm sorry, this is the point. I mean, you know, this, there's this spatial imagination of, of social process, this migration. The, the rule essentially crosses a boundary into, into a different context. And now, there was a, an interesting piece by Frederick Schauer from Harvard who, who wrote on the politics of diffusion. And, you know, he makes this point that laws do not have wings, and it might sound very trite and obvious, but it's not. Um, so the, what he wanted to 
suggest by using this metaphor is that essentially is a function, diffusion is a function of human action. You need someone to craft a rule, and you need someone to operate the diffusion, and then you need someone to receive the rule that has been designed by someone else. Someone as in an individual, a group of individuals, an institution, and so on and so forth. And from the perspective of international law, I think that this, to me, stands out as the most interesting aspect of the question. And very briefly, let me uh, say the following. Back in the 1990s, there was a gigantic debate on corporate codes of conduct. And the idea that corporations would essentially cherry-pick human rights, throw them in a code of conduct, and upload it on their website. And this created uh, a lot of criticism, essentially, that there was a lot of uh, you know, window dressing and this didn't make any sense. And what was interesting then was essentially that it was an aspect of copy and paste. So the corporation would take one, two, three rights and put it in a, in a code of conduct. Here, this is not the same case. Here we have a process which involves an international organization that actually enters into uh, discussions, essentially, with, with a private uh, institution and using a template, a soft law document, essentially, that the, the organization has created, it then does two things. It facilitates the process by adopting rules applicable to states, uh, but framing these rules in, uh, with the explicit view to their adoption and, adoption and application by private certifiers. And it does encourage private schemes to adapt and adopt the rules. Now, this is not the only case where this is happening, and there's a lot of scholarship coming from the US on orchestration, which is an idea uh, pursued by uh, Ken Abbott and Duncan Schneidel, and they uh, see, for example, how international organizations operate in the climate change regime. And this is, again, um, an interesting case. And I would even go as far as suggesting that this role of international organizations, where they engage with private entities. I mean, it can be very clearly seen in the, the mandate of, the, of, of John Ruggie within the UN. I think that that's another interesting case where international human rights law found their ways into a soft law document, which is the guiding principles, and then they have to be operationalized in the activities and conduct of corporations. It's not that the corporation itself took a norm and said, okay, this is how I want to apply it. There was a whole process of constant renegotiation of how the term, the rule, can become uh, a norm of, for risk assessment on behalf of the corporation. So this, you know, the, the, the international organization acting as a middleman, I think, is, is an interesting component. Um, what about the, the outcome? Now, diffusion does not suggest anything about the outcome. So, you know, it may lead into... Okay, this, this is sort of uh, social science speak, essentially. Um, you know, cooperation, cooptation, competition, subordination. Essentially, it can lead to relationships of all different sorts. And this brings us back to the question that was posed by Clabbers and Piparinen, essentially. Can private ordering supplant or antagonize the law, and how does this happen? Now, in the MSC, what is very interesting, it, that there is a market trend towards convergence, which raises convergence with international fisheries law, which raises for me a fundamental paradox. If international law was not working in the first place, why copy it? 
I mean, if the idea of private certification is to uh, essentially uh, mitigate the deficiencies of the application of international law, why go out there and essentially put it in the private standard? This is an interesting question because, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of talk out there and, you know, a lot of people suggest, well, international law is so vague and it doesn't work and, you know, and then you say, okay, what's your idea? And they say, well, why don't we have a private standard? And then, you know, look at the private standard and it's not that private after all. Now, there is, of course, a sociological question here and the question is, why do they do it then? And, um, okay, this is not the role of a lawyer. So when I was in Amsterdam, I, you know, I said, I need to talk to someone from the MSC and the FSC and see why they do it. And, of course, you meet them. I mean, I'm not trained in qualitative interviews in the way of social sciences, but, you know, a qualitative interview is an interview with, a, you know, a nice cup of coffee. <laughs> so in that sense, I had a discussion with, with people from the private initiatives and what they raised as an issue is that they wanted, there was a willingness to become integrated into the existing regulatory framework, which of course raises questions about, you know, acceptance and legitimation, I mean, terms that drive people like Antonio Tsanakopoulos crazy, but I mean, the, the, this is sort of a question there. Um, so, again, it's not that they want to operate in a, a national sphere that's not regulated. They seek to become embedded in the existing regulatory framework. So, okay, last slide. I think I'm on time. So, if we say that there is a process there through which international law, and I would suggest this does not only happen with respect to fish, uh, where international law becomes uh, the basis, or at least it finds its way into the text of private standards, and it constitutes a, pre, uh, I mean, a prerequisite for the operation of private standards, the existence of international and its operation. I mean, what does this tell us about uh, international law? And to be honest, I, I've been at least in, in three seminars where one of the speakers made a paper about anxiety. So there's a lot of anxiety among international lawyers. And first of all, I don't get it, why? Uh, but uh, coming from someone who, you know, reaches Woody Allen-esque proportions of anxiety sometimes, I would say that, you know, there's no reason to be anxious. I think that this is a very interesting question. You know, the idea is that in order for international law to be relevant, it has to be, everything has to be law. It, you know, it can be soft law, informal law, uh, non-state law, da, 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 and all of a sudden everything is law. Now, this defeats the purpose of a private standard, A. I mean, this would be the reply of people who do private standards. But B, law does not have to be everywhere. And, you know, I will say it again. I mean, we've said it many times over, but it is true. International law, unlike the Swiss knife, cannot solve all the problems. Von law. So, I think, but at the same time, to me, at least, this process suggests that there's a continuing relevance in international law. Yes, it cannot solve all the problems. Yes, you know, it, it involves states and uh, their capacities to implement the law and so on and so forth. But at least the content of it is not deemed wholly irrelevant in contemporary times. 
And the idea here, of course, is that it does not operate as an international legal rule that regulates conduct on threat of sanction, let's say, but it becomes a term of reference or a benchmark for private initiatives. Which, which brings me to the second point, which I've already touched upon. I mean, okay, they're not that private. Sorry, but if you go out there and go through a period of uh, constant renegotiation of standards with an international organization, and then you come up with a standard that looks exactly like the, F, the, the, the fish stocks agreement, or incorporates the fish stocks agreement as a prerequisite, I mean, you're not wholly private, let's say. It's nothing completely new, out of the blue, that solves all the problems. It's not a silver bullet. And it's interesting because the, these um, standards do not operate in a regulatory vacuum, which again used to be the idea back in the 1990s, that there is a lacuna in regulation on the global plane, and you know, private standards erupt from the bottom down to fill the gap. Uh, and I'm not so sure whether this is the correct metaphor, especially when it comes to fish. I mean, you know, there's a dense web of regulation. There's a great number of institutions. So, yes, they might not be fully, you know, up to speed with what needs to be done. But at the same time, I would see it rather as a layer than as a gap-filling uh, lacuna. And, you know, if there is a gap in international law, how can you fill it by copying international law, which is, again, a paradox. So uh, this brings me to two um, final points. Uh, well, what happens to international law, law rules that become private standards? I would welcome any suggestions on that. It's still a hazy topic. I mean, you know, someone might say, well, private standards copy rules and then they interpret them in a completely different way than the way states would have interpreted them. Why is this interesting? Because nowadays, it's essentially public authorities that become uh, certification clients of the MSC, which means that states become certification clients and they voluntarily commit to uphold private standards that essentially mirror their international obligations. I mean, this is a trend which is quite marked. I mean, the MSC nowadays says exactly this, that states want to become certified, and not just when it comes to fish. Um, or it, they, they use certification in their laws. I mean, this is, I don't have time to go into this. In the laws or agreements. Uh, so the EU signs some, I mean, is in the process of doing voluntary partnerships for forests. And you read the partnership between Ghana and the EU. I think it's Ghana. And then all of a sudden they say, certify the timber and we will import it. And then the question is, how will Ghana certify the timber? And all of a sudden you see a reference to it, the FSC, which is the, the twin brother or sister of the MSC, so the Forest Stewardship Council. So I don't know whether diffusion allays fears of fragmentation in the idea that you know, there's going to be a migration of the law and all of a sudden it will assume a completely different content. Perhaps the position of the FAO as the, the middleman may, may uh, allay such concerns. And in any case, the, the content of the diffused rule is not always crystal clear. It's like Article 10 of the FSA is so crystal clear and then we'll, it will be used in the market context and all of a sudden become uh, muddled. Um, now, what I think is interesting again is that, well, I, I'm not uh, an appall, I mean, you know, I, uh, 
I don't espouse private standards wholeheartedly, and I see that there are a lot of problems with them. Uh, but it's interesting because one of the questions is that this is, happens beyond the confines of the state. It's completely legitimate, you know. But, you know, this is not so clear again how it happens. I mean, in the process. Now, let me go to uh, briefly to the final point and stop with this. Now, as we said, um, the the MSC at least uh, grafts on the pre-existing regulatory framework. Uh, so the, here's how it works. Um, you want to get a fishery certified. If the law is below par, let's say in terms of quality of assurances and the protection of fish, you cannot get the certification. So there are two, two things that may happen. Uh, the fish, the consortium of fishermen um, po, you know, put pressure on the state to up their standards in order to meet the requirements of, of uh, private certification, which does not happen all that often, but it has happened. Um, and B, the, the other uh, um, consequence is that it's only well-developed, uh, developed states with a very you know, stringent framework that get certification. So if you see the certification map, essentially, most of the fisheries are in the waters of developed states because they have rules that conform to international law. So there's a criticism there because essentially what you do is that you certify what's already sustainable. And then you put a label on it and say, okay, this is good. Whereas a developing state or a, uh, you know, a consortium of fishermen um, in uh, a developing uh, state may not be able to get certification because of uh, the lower stringency of national law and the state not wanting to go out there. But, uh, and on that note, I'll finish. I mean, coming back to the idea that public authorities engage with certification, it's interesting, it's interesting how perhaps and again, I'm not a big fan of the market either as a regulatory tool, but um, we can envision a situation where a state wanting to get a certification changes the law in order to get it, which then, of course, brings us to the crux of the question, which is uh, whether, because of market pressures, there, there is a change in the law, but this change is not in the sense of let's abide by our international legal standards, that is let's get certified. So I will leave it at that. Thank you very much for, for your attention. I think, I mean, you know, I, uh, I was perhaps a crypto interdisciplinary lawyer <laughs> before doing this, sorry. Uh, I mean, you know, my work has been very positive, positivist up to now. But again, I think that there's, there's an element of international law in this process which, you know, defines this whole, let's do away with international law, let's go out there and find... Uh, pluralist ways of, of, of dealing with, with, with the problems that, uh, that we're facing. So uh, I'll leave it at that, and I'm, I'm, you know, I definitely welcome suggestions and questions. Thank you very much.